Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Chili Technology, makers of the Chili Pad and the Uller. If you've been around us for a second, you know that we are exposed to a lot of technology, a lot of supplements. People are like, we have the thing that's going to change everything. And honestly, most of the time, it's not true. But I want to say that using the chili pad changed my life. That's true. I'll tell you that before we found the chili pad years ago, Kelly was a hot and sweaty sleeper and never was able to cool off. Dude, I would I would have to throw the legs out. I mean, I had fans one in my head. Yeah. So what ends up happening is that the Uller or the chili pad circulates cold water underneath my sheet all night long. So what ends up happening is I never overheat. In fact, I sleep better. I don't wake up and I wake up ready to go. It has changed my life. And on because I actually tend to run cold, I actually sleep with the chili weighted blanket, which also circulates cold water. And what's so cool about it is I can be under this feeling of heavy weightedness, even in the middle of the summer, and not get overheated. It's like sleeping inside the womb, I'll be honest. So not only did I see a direct change in my sleep recovery scores, in my sleep density, right? Because sometimes we can't control the amount of sleep we get, but we can start the quality of the sleep we get. Um, I started talking about this and we have a whole bunch of people going through sort of age-related hormonal changes in our life. Um, And I will say that at the tops of society, all those friends, all the way down to my mother-in-law, we put them on the chili pad to help modulate and regulate sleep temperature and it changed everything. So look, we are huge, huge fans. These guys and gals and people are extraordinary. The company is great and this will change your life. Seriously, it is the number one product that Kelly recommends to anyone and everyone that he knows. So I recommend you check it out. We both highly recommend it. I mean, I sent one to Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, Drew Brees. I mean, if you're in my family, I was like, you need to get one of these things. It's pretty remarkable. If you want to get one or try it out, go to chilitechnology.com slash TRS, where you can get 25% off the chili pad and 15% off the Uller. No discount code needed. Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist and two-time New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, his books, and seminars. Rob holds a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, is a former California state powerlifting champion, and a 6-0 amateur kickboxer. He has provided seminars in nutrition and strength and conditioning to tons of entities, including NASA, Naval Special Warfare, the Canadian Light Infantry, and the United States Marine Corps, to name a few. Rob lives in Texas with his wife and business partner, Nikki, and their two daughters. Rob Wolf, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. It is an honor to be here. I'm always happy to bring down property values wherever I go. (laughs) speaking of property values i hope your daughter is okay you guys have made a recent uh move to texas and what just happened well she was sagan our youngest was uh outside picking blackberries and was rooting around under a bush and then came in and looked kind of like i something was wrong she had a big handful of blackberries i'm like hey what's up and she's like nothing and she like shoulders past me and then she goes to mom and she says, hey, I think something bit me. 
so <laughs> we looked on her leg and right on her left VMO are two puncture wounds that to my eye and to the eye of the emergency room physician and to the eyes of many other people that looked at it looked remarkably like a, uh, a snake bite um, based off the way that she described it, where it, it like an electrical zing, um, followed by a little bit of redness, but, but, you know, no cellulitis, no ne necrotic tissue. We're assuming oh that God. it was, it, it, we're assuming that it was, it, and I'm doing air quotes here, only a double tap from a scorpion at this point. So, yeah. Well, this is <sighs> one is. That's so terrifying. Yeah. Julie and I spent so much time in the desert. I hope, glad your family is safe so far. I mean, I've read The Pearl. It's a cautionary tale. But that really does set up our conversation with you about being, you know, you are the first person in our life who said, hey, maybe it's not just macronutrients and trying to eat, like counting guacamole and chips in a beer is like a balanced meal. And you said, hey, really, food quality matters. And this is 15 years ago to everyone. I mean, you, you were the first person who said, hey, look, you really got to pay attention to this and you're missing a third or more of the puzzle. And I think this idea of your daughter foraging for blackberries and having a mishap <laughs> is really the allegory of our time around people thinking about food or eating, even like one step removed from food, right? Eating something and trying to tweak their health and yet tripping on themselves. So, um, I'm, I'm psyched to get into it today. Awesome. So, Thank you. Rob, we know, obviously, that you started out in your professional life as a research biochemist. Tell us how you switched into being a uh, paleo-keto expert. A, a purveyor of pseudoscience. <laughs> purveyor of nutrition information um, over the last 15 years. Kelly and I obviously know quite a bit about this story, but please share. Yeah. You know, I had a really significant health crisis. I, I had ulcerative colitis so bad at the ripe old age of about 26, 27, that I was facing a bowel resection. And I was in, um, a, right getting ready to start either a PhD track, an MD track or an MD PhD track. And so I, I was steeped well enough in this, this area that I knew that getting a bowel resection at that age wasn't really going to bode well for me long term. I, I Again, I had ulcerative colitis. And through kind of an interesting set of circumstances, the, the possibility that I might be really reactive to most grains, most legumes and, and dairy kind of got on my radar. And when, it, when that idea just kind of was thrown on top of me, I was sitting there thinking, man, if you don't eat grains, legumes, and dairy, what on earth do you eat? You know, and it was just kind of this free associative deal. And I was like, oh, and, and mind you, this was back in uh, 1998. And I was like, huh, so those things are like agriculture. What did we do before agriculture? We were hunter-gatherers. What do you call that? And it, I was like, oh, a paleolithic diet. I've heard of something like that. So I went into the house, turned on the computer, waited for it to like, you know, chirp and whistle and do all of its stuff and, <laughs> and get the dial-up connection going. And then there was this nifty new search engine called Google. And into Google, I put the term Paleolithic Diet. And I found some work from Arthur Devaney and also Lauren Cordain. And Lauren had just published this really 
remarkably powerful paper called uh, Cereal Grains, Humanities, Double-Edged Sword. And it talked about how we probably wouldn't have civilization as we know it without the advent of agriculture, but that maybe, um, you know, don't, don't want to <laughs> make people uncomfortable, but maybe there are trade-offs in biology. Maybe a gain in one area could lead to problems or deficiencies in in other areas, and he, a, a big part of what he detailed was really significant gut pathology from these kind of immunogenic uh, uh, foods that, that, at least for my biology, maybe weren't well set up to, to handle. And so I tweaked my diet towards uh, what, what we would now call kind of a low-par paleo-keto type approach, and that was 22 years ago. And I've tinkered and fiddled and tried other stuff along the way, but for me, this kind of ancestral health model, uh, leaning towards the lower carb side, has been kind of my my safe place. Like when you're your kids and you you're playing tag, like there's this home base. Like that's my home base, and I do a little bit of tinkering and fiddling, um, but that's still kind of the for my bullseye. That's where I get about 80, 85 percent close to uh, what I need is just using that that kind of worldview. You you guys, you and your wife, um, have probably put more time on the internet answering questions complex around complex personal biology and you know uh all things as it relates to trying to use food as medicine or food as a healing vehicle not even just trying to you know make it medicine than anyone else but i also want to just appreciate that you have always kept your foot rooted in performance you've you've owned a strength and conditioning gym it was one of the the best gyms in the country um, you, you are, you guys are both incredible athletes. You've, you've been working alongside of athletes. Are we at odds trying to, you know, because I, I, in, at our local market and we live in Marin here, there are three magazines at the checkout counter now called paleo life or some iteration mm -hmm. of that. Right. <laughs> so that ship has sailed. I mean, yeah. our neighbors are like, I eat paleo. I'm like, what does that mean to you? And they're like, you know, you know, I'm like, Fermented hornet's nest soup? Is that what you mean by paleo? And, um, do you forage for scorpion berries? Um, but how do we, are those things at odd in terms of fueling and uh, trying to reduce crappy carbohydrate in my diet? I mean, how do I make sense of both of those things? Because I, I think we're in a world of high octane intensity, right? I mean, isn't that sugar burning? Yeah, generally. And, you know, this is a, this is an interesting thing is as much genius as I think came out of the, the concept of, of CrossFit and like the sickness, wellness, fitness um, continuum. I, I don't think that it was an infinite continuum that there were actually uh, it, it's like taking derivatives. It, you know, there are inflection points where we might get a, a diversion. In my head, I saw this more, as, interestingly, as uh, you guys are the ready state, but then in, the, in chemistry and physics, there's the triple point, the triple state, you know, where a gas, a liquid, and a solid all exist at the same, you know, where they interface at the same temperature and pressure. And in my head, I've kind of seen that divergence of performance, health, and longevity is um, sometimes they're supportive, sometimes they may be antagonistic. And uh, I, I think that one takeaway from this exploration of kind of like forging elite fitness is that 
at some point, the volume and intensity of that type of training becomes antithetical to health. But then at the same time, the fueling necessary to support that degree of output, which I mean, if you can make a, a, a seven figure plus career, you know, winning competitions like that and getting endorsement deals, then by all means, the, the cost benefit story may be uh, favorable for you, but very similar to the, the droves of cyclist clients that we had early on that would look at what you know, Lance Armstrong ate and assumed that they could do the same thing, but yet they were still had a body mass index of Jupiter. You know, it was like, the shit's not working for you guys. So, it, it, you know, there's definitely divergences and inflection points. And there are places where if the performance really needs to, to go, particularly at that high motor uh, side of things, then the, the, the more refined carbohydrate becomes a, a a necessity, uh, you know, kind of non-negotiable, but it is interesting. The other side of this thing, um, you know, Zach Bitter, who has set the world record for the indoor hundred mile race, and he's done a bunch of other hundred mile races. He's pretty much like carnivore, although he will use some really targeted carbs, but it, it you know, it's interesting. He may do a significant bulk of his training and his yearly periodization in a very low carb state. But still, when, when it's time to really be high motor, even people who train 95% of the time low carb, they know that uh, dense carb carbohydrate sources you know, can be a, a game changer for them used under the right circumstance. But it, 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 it is powerful medicine. Like the, this is maybe just a little bit of cautionary tale for folks is that if you spend more of your life sitting on your duff like I do, than being a, a you know a seal or a hard charging athlete or something like that, then we may need to to revisit the glycemic load that you're experiencing and and think about ways of eating so that we spontaneously reduce calorie intake and we can maintain that more or less effortlessly versus you know needing a, a lockbox on the refrigerator. You know, I actually have a distinct memory uh, memory of seeing the shift, uh, speaking of sort of high-intensity CrossFit game-style athletes, where at one competition in, let's say, 2011, I saw everyone eating sweet potatoes and broccoli and what looked to be like a pretty strict paleo diet. And then literally one year later, as the game started becoming more intense and a full-time job, full-time sport, endorsement deals, you name it. Um, we actually went to an event and I was like, wow, everybody is just eating all the refined carbs. Like it was just this, I don't know, it just seemed to be this quick switch where I think people realized for better or worse that in order to sort of manage that level of volume that they had to add back in the refined carbs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and, and let me ask you as a follow-up, you know, that seems pretty reasonable. I mean, it, it, for an average person, a mortal could I, is that a, like a 90, 10 rule? I mean, I, I get that it, it depends and there's a lot going on and certainly I'm a 47 year old guy and I'm not very elite, but what, is that a good way of thinking about really looking at carbohydrate as like kerosene I'm dumping on a fire a few <laughs> times, maybe once a week or twice a week for short times and really trying to think about using that. And on the other hand, just trying to, what is it like? like live low, train high sort of idea. I mean, is, yeah. is that, is that, is you think that's, cause we always think, Hey, you know, 
what can we learn from sport? But is is that a more sustainable model or at least a, a starting place that seems reasonable? Or, or am I just still spiking the football, you know, over my 11-year-old daughter? Yeah, I. It, it, it's tough because we have to definitely respect individual biology. So like uh, one of the main drivers for writing my second book, Wired to Eat, was this uh, amazing work that came out of the Weizmann Institute in Israel. And they did just an amazing study, 800 people in this study. They did a full gut microbiome analysis, a full genetic screen, really extensive lipidology testing. And then they started feeding these folks different types of meals and different types specifically of carbohydrates and then looking at what the blood glucose response was to these, these feedings. And what they found was that it, there was virtually no rhyme or reason in the way that people responded to food. Like some people would eat a banana and they would have nearly diabetic blood sugar levels. But if they ate a chocolate chip cookie, <laughs> it. It, it, it looked like they, they drank water. Like, I mean, it was, it just didn't budge. And this just kind of, it was, you know, we always love either confirmation bias or, or something that, that, you know, you're actually onto something and I'm not entirely sure which, which of these this was, but I had had this sense that I'm like, fuck man, some people, really seem to motor along pretty well with good amount of carbs. And even if it's fairly refined, like they just do well. And we would do a little bit of blood sugar testing on these people. And again, this was really early and I don't really think I had the, the, the orientation to see what was, was going on more deeply here. But what I would notice is that the people who did well with carbs would eat a very carbohydrate rich meal but their blood glucose response looked like my blood glucose response to eating a low carb meal. And that Mm. was really kind of the takeaway. And when we look if we do pull a page out of kind of the ancestral health model, the ancestral health story, the average blood glucose that's been tracked in pre-agricultural societies is really low. Even if they're eating like an 80% carb diet, they don't get these hmm. really extreme blood sugar excursions. Now, is it due to... And when you say low, I mean, give us a, a, there, a vital sign point. It's rarely, if ever, getting above, say, like 115 nanograms per deciliter. Really rare. Yeah. And this wow, is, okay. you know, like people are eating 80% of their calories from carbohydrates. Whereas in our world we don't really start getting concerned about blood glucose levels post, you know, postprandial, postmeal until it gets 140, 160. And then we're like, oh, well, maybe we need to think about doing something around that. And, and what, what I took away from the Weizmann Institute work and some work that uh, people like Stefan Guianet, who looked at these blood glucose levels in uh, pre-Westernized societies was that if we get these excursions at a real high, which tend to be followed then by a real low, this it has a lot of negative effects on our, our physiology. Like there's a pretty good case to be made that the, the primary precipitator of, of coronary events may be blood sugar excursions, not, not necessarily lipid you know, dynamics. And, and mm-hmm. so a high to low in blood glucose correlates r- shockingly tightly with um, precipitating a, a different clotting events. So that, that's kind of an interesting thing. But from the general kind of uh, ability to maintain a healthy body weight, 
going from a high blood sugar to a low blood sugar is a fantastic way to make yourself hungry and chronically hungry. And, <laughs> and so uh, this is the, the thing that, you know, when you look at, at folks like Lane Norton or, you know, different people, it, it's kind of a, a, what's that analogy of the, the four blind men, you know, holding the, the elephant and one's got the trunk and one's got the ear and, and all that. And so we each kind of have a little piece of the, the puzzle and, Calories absolutely matter, but there is also kind of a reality that higher protein intake in general tends to lead to more satiety, like less less uh, kind of gnarly hunger signaling. And then finding the appropriate glycemic load is an incredibly powerful tool for folks. And I know that this was kind of a, a wandering, meandering answer, but th this is where when Nikki and I did this experiment... Uh, kind of supporting the launch of of Wired to Eat. Uh, she's forty pounds lighter than I am, but we would each eat fifty grams of uh, carbohydrate from like uh, rice or potatoes or corn tortillas or what have you. And even though she's smaller than I am, which you would assume that if she eats the same amount of carbs, the fact that she's smaller, there's less volume there to dilute it. But her blood glucose might get 115, 120 from that, and mine would be 190 to 200. And I felt oh horrible. God. I had vision oh changes, God. and I'm like, "Oh, this is this is what I've always experienced." You know, I've wow. I've tried to eat low low fat, higher carb because that's supposed to facilitate insulin sensitivity, and I would mainly partition my carbs post workout, and I did apple cider vinegar because that blunts the glycemic load. And none of that stuff really works for me. And then I did a little genetic testing and like every genetic test I've done, it's basically like you have zero carb tolerance, you know? And so, um, which again, you know, confirmation bias, but I think that this is a really important thing to take away within the population. I would, and, and people like Barry Sears have thrown this number out that 75%, you know, somewhere between 70 and 80% of the population isn't really well set up for carbohydrate tolerance, particularly as we age. Like once you get past about age 40, you know, people usually start seeing some real significant yeah. changes in the way that they respond to, to dense amounts of carbohydrate. Maybe 20% of people do pretty well with it. Um, maybe there's changes in our gut microbiome that drive that or whatever, but I've been really at a loss for what to do in that story other than some experimentation to figure out where your your good operating parameters are how do you look how do you feel how do you perform how do lab values look when we we tweak one variable or another and just kind of finding a a glycemic load that works for you and and for a lot of people it, it tends to be in that like 50 to 75 grams of carbs per day level if you want to make that Bread and tortillas, I guess that's fine, but you just don't get a lot of nutrition out of that. So that's where like shifting more towards like fruits, vegetables, roots, tubers, you get more nutrition, you tend to get more satiety and, and that sort of thing. So what you're saying is if someone is listening to this, there's not some magic test you can go out and take to determine whether you are someone who manages carbs well like Nikki does or does not like you. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. The folks from the Weitzman Institute, they have spun off a, a commercial thing with this. And I have no financial ties to this, but it's called Day 2, I believe. And in theory, what they're able to do is, is test your gut microbiome, do a few other things, 
and they they did some machine learning around the information that they had and were in theory able to kind of look at this from the back end so based on your gut microbiome based off of a survey they are able to predict uh, certain foods and amounts that in theory you would you would do better or worse with i i have not seen a ton of validation on that but it is coming from this original work from the weitzman institute so in theory that that thing could at least provide some initial insight uh and, and it's not super expensive it's 100 bucks 110 bucks something like that to to do it so it could be a, a worthwhile whistle stop in figuring this stuff out but i think just a little experimentation can can go a long way on this too yeah, I mean, I just, I love um, just the general point you've made, though, that we're not all the same and that what works for one may not work for another. And I do think that's uh, such an important message to people is that it really is about experimenting, starting to figure out, sort of pay attention to your body and see how you feel and what works well and how you perform athletically. Um, you know, to me, that's such an important part of all this. And I think often lost in the the sort of commercialization of various nutrition strategies and so forth. But anyway, I just wanted to say, I really appreciate that. Um, question for you, because I do get this question a lot, uh, from people. Can you explain the difference between paleo and keto? And no, it's no, just summarize all the research. Well, like two just yet, uh, you know, just reader's digest version. Yeah. Um, but I know that a lot of, uh, people who were once known as the paleo people are now the keto people. And, uh, at least among friends of mine, I think that's been a source of confusion. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would probably be one of those folks, although it's kind of funny if you look at my first book when it was written, um, I, I wouldn't even say paleo was hot yet because that was the first book that kind oh, no. of- like No, there, it was not. It wasn't a paleo <laughs> genre before you were, that. You outran your coverage so far. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it, my perspective on this is paleo is really concerned about food quality and by exclusion, it's generally putting a little bit of a stink eye towards grains, legumes, and dairy, just in real simple terms. And, it, and then from there, you can kind of slice and dice the macronutrients, high carb, low carb, high fat, low fat, that's up to you. And then a ketogenic diet, and there's a lot of different iterations on the ketogenic diet. The, the original iteration of the ketogenic diet was developed uh, almost 100 years ago. 2021 will be 100 years of, of uh, the epilepsy-based ketogenic diet that, that was developed. Um, when folks observed that, that people with um, really intractable epilepsy did remarkably well while fasting, and, the, and they would enter into a, a ketogenic state where instead of running primarily on uh, glucose, um, their, their bodies tended to run more on uh, ketone bodies. And so there was a, a very high fat, low carb, low to moderate protein diet that was developed around that. And they call it like the three to one or the four to one ketogenic diet. And then if we kind of uh, go forward, there were some blips on the screen like Atkins and, and different things kind of giving a hat tip towards low-carb diets. And we're, we're, the technical definition of, of ketosis, and this is part of the, the reason why um, researching a paleolithic diet is a slippery thing, because to, to you guys have kind of alluded to this. What does that mean? You know, and it, it could be higher carb, it could be lower carb. It's kind of all over the place. Whereas a ketogenic diet, we can at least establish the benchmark 
and have a consensus that it's like if your blood levels of beta hydroxybutyrate are at or above 0.5 millimolar uh, per liter, you're in, you're in a ketogenic state, you know, and you could do that by a variety of different methods. But from a research perspective, it really lends itself nicely because we've got a, an agreed upon benchmark to look at in that scenario. But in, in my world, I, I like, uh, uh, again, as a starting point for many people, kind of a keto ratio kind of on the higher protein side, which if, if folks want to poke around this, it, it's often called a modified Atkins. So the protein intake on a modified Atkins or like a Bernstein's diabetes solution approach to low carb eating is significantly higher than what we would see in a, a medically supervised ketogenic diet that is used for epilepsy or adjunctive cancer treatment and, and things like that. And those scenarios we do some, some things like calorie restriction, protein restriction, and adding additional fat to try to goose the ketone levels because there are some scenarios where having the, the ketones higher and the blood glucose lower may be beneficial for certain neurological conditions and, and uh, adjunctive cancer treatment. But it, it, again, I guess just kind of to, to recap, I don't really see these things being antagonistic and in my first book, uh, keto was not a real popular topic. It was kind of, kind of a, a shunned topic at that time. But my experience had been that people tended to do really well, at least in the beginning with a, a low carb approach. And so it was paleo foods with a recommendation of, of fewer than 50 grams of carbs a day for men, about 30 grams of carbs a day for women. That, thank you for summarizing that. Um, here we are in the middle of this this devastating you know epidemic pandemic and the reason i say epidemic is it's turning out that the people who are most susceptible are diabetic or overweight have cardiovascular disease are insulin sensitive it seems like we i mean you on the one hand i think really started around performance and this and I, I know that you were trying to solve your own health problems which sounds very much like a very commonality for all all of our friends who have become uh food diet ninjas or you know understanding this human biochemistry but you you quickly realized that out of this performance base or having this conversation or solving you really ended up becoming an expert in helping people use the number one behavior in their lives eating to try to change you know really chronic disease states you know i think when right now if i ask people like why are you interested in nutrition it's to change body composition is really mm -hmm. the honest like i just want to look better naked so tell me what to do right that's why i mean that's why all we have a bunch of middle-aged friends in this neighborhood who have discovered intermittent fasting, but it's just calorie restriction for them. I mean, right. really, it's like wine and calorie restriction. Right. You know? and I'm, like, I'm like, okay, that's one way to do it. But it's really about body composition. But we have this really interesting global topic right now, especially in this country where, you know, uh, communities of color, um, people of lower socioeconomic status are just being wiped out by this. How, what do we need to think about this? I mean, is this, you know, the solution do we, how do we have this greater conversation about this because in this moment i feel like you're actually holding the keys to the castle rob oh well, thank you i uh, it's it's <laughs> interesting uh 2010 is the first 
time that I gave a, a public presentation citing um, numbers from the Congressional Budget Office. CBO is a, a bipartisan, you know, in, governmental entity as, as missionary style and orthodox as you could get. There's nothing real controversial about it. It's a bunch of quants and, and number crunching people. And, and back around 2010, it got on my radar that there was a projection that somewhere around 2030, 2035, the U.S. would be bankrupt from diabetes-related healthcare costs. Hmm. And that's because we've been on this step. 2035. 2030, 2035, you know, so somewhere in that, uh, there were some error bars ar around that. But it was just making the case that it, when you look at different populations, although we in, in the U.S., we are in general seeing a, a more aged population, it, a more aged population need not be a more expensive population to manage. And we have lots of examples of this around the world. But a sick population, particularly a population that is sick from chronic degenerative disease, becomes an exponentially more costly uh, you know, group of people to deal with, particularly if you have the absolute catastrophe of the third-party payer system in the U.S. And, and the moral hazard that we have within our, our health insurance scene. So we have this real disaster that's been brewing there. And I started talking about this around... 2010, and it was kind of in conjunction with some work that I did with the Reno Police, Reno Fire Department, where we identified 40 people at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, got them on kind of a low-carb paleo-type diet. But based off the changes in their blood work and their health risk assessment numbers, it's estimated that pilot study alone saved the city of Reno about $22 million with a really conservative 33 to 1 return on investment. And when I first, so you're saying it wasn't worth it. Yeah, it absolutely wasn't <laughs> worth it because, and, and that was in, that was about money. That wasn't even about yeah. the quality of life or how people felt or how they looked or yeah. felt. They, That's how the they whole functioned. other sideline. Yeah, these people didn't die. <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah, which was was generally the most common outcome for the people in this cohort was a, a sudden death on the job if they didn't die. Um, kind of kind of cynically, it was almost worse because. The on-the-books cost to retire these people was about $1.8 million. The real cost could be five to 10 times more than that, which is why most municipalities are running these massive deficits because it, it, they have these under, uh, underfunded liabilities. So I started talking about both of these kind of seemingly intertwined concepts. One was a solution, you know, um, identify metabolic health or disease and then do an intervention based around effective methodology to address that. And then also kind of ringing the spell that we, we have an exponential growth scenario occurring with regards to chronic degenerative disease. Now, the exponential growth that we had, had historically been experiencing with, say, like diabetes, the doubling rate was years, whereas with this COVID pandemic, the doubling rate is, is days or, or possibly weeks. But in my perspective, all that this SARS-CoV-2 virus has done is it took a process that was necessitating decades to occur and it has compressed it into weeks or months. But it is exactly the same story. It's exactly the same challenge. Uh, clearly, when the, the volume and intensity go up, then the, the ability to cope with that become ever more, more daunting and more challenging. But the, this is kind of a, 
an interesting opportunity in our history to really revisit what are the recommendations from like governmental organizations. There was just a a piece by the WHO yesterday, two days before, kind of on their Twitter feed that was basically um, avoid saturated fat, avoid red meat, eat seed oils, yeah. and eat flour. And it was, and there's enough pushback on that now. There are enough people that are kind of like, wait a second here, and they don't necessarily need to be like, you know, club wielding cavemen to to back this. But they're like, this is kind of, this is a little fishy. Like you guys are making recommendations that we know aren't consistent with health. So then these these main entities out there that in theory are supposed to be the the sources that we turn to for advice and guidance, they're not credible any longer. And so then you you turn into the the black abyss of the interwebs, which I just became aware a couple of weeks ago that there's a a whole cross section of people that think that uh, uh, the COVID two disease process is caused by five G um, <laughs> uh, cell phone signals, and I, I I I lost my mind. Like I I spent fifteen hours putting together a slide deck, did a two hour podcast on this, and and basically went through the the physics of the electromagnetic spectrum and how this stuff was absolutely preposterous. And folks were were. It, 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 it ranged from, well, it's good to know you're a shill for uh, telecom to <laughs> just all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, we're, we're in a really a, a fascinating opportunity because the, the health challenges have had a, a bright light shown upon them. But the way that we navigate this is going to be really interesting because our, our usual sources of information, I, I think, are not – they're either – accepted as gospel and any questioning that occurs will get you banned or either shadow banned or outright banned or have your your website kind of removed from the the search engine um results like like happened with mine or you have people that are really casting around for a different narrative and it the the conspiracy theory stuff is really juicy and interesting and it at a knee jerk level kind of compelling. So we have a, a really fascinating opportunity, but it's it's gonna be a, a remarkable challenge to unpack this thing and kind of move things forward. It it really is. I mean, just to sort of add on to some of the the things you've been reading, Kelly and I read this article, I think yesterday in the New York Times that said only twelve percent of Americans don't have diabetes, high blood pressure, metabolic disease. Um, and, and I don't know why I, I, I found that to be particularly shocking, just sort of put in those terms. Um, and, and then simultaneously, we heard another bit of news where uh, somebody was talking about the challenges with the supply chain and the food industry and industrial food and saying, well, he, he basically just said, well, we're, you know, depending on how long, long this lasts, we're probably just going to have, you know, a lot of people are just going to need to rely on cereal grains to survive. And Kelly and I just looked at each other and thought, oh, man, you know. That's that's the number one way to just make this whole thing worse at this point. Yeah. So, yeah. Ironically, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, turning a little bit to a question that I've been thinking about, we did our last season of our podcast on aging, and then obviously this whole season is about nutrition, nutrition-related topics. Quite a few of the experts that we've talked to have reported that as they've aged and gotten over forty and sort of learned how to manage their diets they've switched to kind of a two times a day eating model. And so 
what I'm wondering is, are you doing that? And, um, you know, how, how do we sort of explain this to regular people mm-hmm. <laughs> who think eating twice a day is crazy and something they could never do and they could never skip breakfast or skip a meal or whatever. Um, so two I, two I find square that, meals is a rectangle. Yeah, I, I just, it, it's interesting because I, I know so many people, my friends and, you know, experts in this field who sort of switched to this way of eating. And um, simultaneously, uh, I find it to be very unaccessible to a lot of regular people. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I, I the the big talk that I'm doing this year, which most of the events have been canceled, is uh, longevity. Are we trying too hard? And <laughs> I um right. I have a a pretty contrarian view on a lot of this stuff. Uh, and I I don't want to drag this too far out in the weeds on that, but there's been a lot of research around, say, like calorie restriction uh, in different animal models. And when you really dig into that stuff, it's interesting. It's really compelling. Uh, some animals see like a, a, a near doubling in life, life, you know, both health span and lifespan. But when you really get in and look at that research, this doesn't happen in all animals. And what's really fascinating is it absolutely does not happen in either wild animals nor does it occur in animals that are fed a species-appropriate diet. When you calorie-restrict critters that are fed a species-appropriate diet, they die young. <laughs> so when you really get in and look at some of the, the for me, the, the more nuanced research on this, what I see calorie restriction doing is saving animals, which is where the bulk of this, this research has been done, saving animals from a horrible composition lab chow-based diet. These animals are being fed like the the penultimate of refined dietary interventions. And this is done in part because, you know, in science, we like to have both accuracy and precision. And if you feed mice crickets and mealworms and and buckwheat and stuff like that, it's kind of hard to really know for sure what their protein carb fat intake was. But if you feed them these these homogenized pellets that we know exactly how much corn oil and whey protein and what have you goes into that, then we can isolate these variables. But there there hasn't been a ton of research done on this. But the research that has fed animals a species-appropriate diet, they don't overeat. And spontaneously, they don't overeat. And they they don't see any type of, of enhanced longevity. And this goes the same for like protein restriction. I know like people like uh, Walter Longo and some different folks are, are very geeked out on super low protein intake and this fear of mTOR and everybody's all fired up about autophagy and stuff like that. But it's, it, for me, I, I, I guess the, the big takeaway is once someone has arrived at something that looks like, quote, ancestral eating and they're not overeating, which is a non-trivial thing in a world of hyperpalatable, highly processed foods. Like I'm not making light of that, but once somebody has achieved a reasonable level of leanness and they've found some sort of what I would call kind of ancestral eating strategy, I don't know how much more upside there is to be had from different fasting interventions and, and things like that. Now, all of that said, I think that uh, getting to a point where you are metabolically flexible enough to have, say, like a big breakfast and a decent sized dinner or like a big breakfast and a big lunch. And, you, you know, it, it, it's kind of up to you to 
figure out how to slice and dice that stuff. But if you need to eat every two hours or you start getting that hangry thing and you spin out and you're, you're lethargic and you want to kill yourself or other people, that's a sign of significant problems. And so um, I'm not in the low protein camp. I'm not in the protein avoidance camp, uh, particularly when we look at the outcomes associated with effective aging. We should probably be eating more protein, not less, but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, doing six meals a day. might mean something crazy like two meals and a snack. And I think that you can do a really, really good job of supporting all of those, you know, performance, health, longevity kind of goals. And it, here's just some, some interesting takeaways. Like we know for a fact that more or less daily exercise confers somewhere between two to six years of additional longevity for people. The ironic part of that is that it's kind of a wash because most of the time spent exercising accounts for that additional life. So it's, it, it, it's you know, you're, you're living <laughs> potentially longer, but you're exercising during that time. So it's a, not a huge bump there, but it's, it, it, it's a bump. Um, the getting decent daily sun exposure, and this isn't turning yourself into a leather handbag, but a reasonable uh, UV exposure, it, it's as significant in health the people who get inadequate sun exposure have as increased morbidity, mortality as people who smoke versus non-smokers. Wow. And we know this for a fact. But when we really get into the research around calorie restriction, if we were to get the maximum calorie restriction benefit from a longevity perspective, we have to start this as children. We will be stunted in our growth, hypogonadic, a low body temperature, cold, miserable our whole life, and we might get six additional years of life. Because uh, in humans, the genetic reaction norm, which is a, a phenotypic uh, kind of story of the way our genes allocate resources, the way that we're wired up, the way our, our evolutionary biology is, we've already been massively selected for longevity. We, we're the longest lived, one of the longest lived organisms, certainly the longest lived primate. And primates tend to live a long time because of the complexity of their culture. But there's this concept called the grandmother uh, uh, paradox, which uh, it has this whole post-reproductive period of effective life because grandparents could potentially play a massive role in caring for children and cultural transmission and stuff like that. So we already have a, a really massive selection pressure in favor of longevity. The main challenge is just not screwing that up by infectious disease, injury, or in, in the current you know, environment, eating ourselves to death. So I have a really, again, pretty contrarian and blase view of like the intermittent fasting and all that stuff. Like it's, it's fine if it works as a tool to help you, you know, get control of, of calorie intake for some people just streamline their streamlines their life, like eating two meals a day versus three. That's, that's a one less time you have to cook and clean and, and do all the rest of that stuff. Um, I tend to be somewhere between that two and three meals a day if I do jujitsu on a day, I usually get in three meals. If I'm pretty sedentary, I get in two and that, that's where it is. But it, it's uh, quite protein centric. And, um, you know, I'm really keeping an eye on lifting weights or doing some sort of resistance training at least like four days a week to, to keep that anabolic signaling going. 
Man, that's great. Um, thank you. You know, I feel like we're going to need to have part three, part four, part five, part seven with you. I mean, it's, <laughs> and I just want to reiterate that the two of you have done such a good job of talking about and creating transparency and talking all this out and your resources are available for people who want to go deeper. Now, one of the things I just have to mention because it has been, has become a keystone of our lives and I'm just, this is a, an unabashed gushing, but you created a an electrolyte mix, but it wasn't necessarily for me. It was for a set of problems that people had and this is called Elements, L-M-N-T. And it's just like a f rad flavored salt package. For a long time, I've been telling people, hey, you do not absorb this pure water that you're drinking. You just bolus your kidneys and pee it out, mm -hmm. right? And I've always been saying, hey, you should just, if you're not drinking water with food, add a pinch of sea salt with your water and you'll absorb the water much more effectively. You actually have to drink a lot less water. But you came along with Element. And this is what Juliet and I used to ride. This is like, I mean, this is... This changed how awake I feel, and I realized I wasn't eating enough salt. And when I started to look around, I saw a lot of people, you know, starting to say ch things like chase salt, mm -hmm. right? Make salt mm -hmm. an important part, especially as we clean up diets. And I saw, and cleaned up, sorry, as we ate more foods that had less processed salt in them, we saw that people weren't replacing that salt. But you started this for another reason. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I, I have eaten a, a lower carb diet for 22 years and motor along pretty well, pretty good performance with that. But fueling jujitsu was always kind of a challenge. I, I just didn't really feel like I had that that low gear that's, that's nice to have sometimes in scrambles. And I started hanging out with these two guys, uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor. They're the founders of Keto Gains. And they're, they're really, really good at the, the practical coaching implementation of ketogenic diets and like the body composition changes that they get in folks and the health changes are really, really jaw dropping. And so uh, it started hanging out with these guys and I shot them what I was up to and I'm like, hey, you know, look at what I'm doing. What could I do differently to better fuel for jujitsu? Because what I, what I found I needed to do was eat more carbs in and around the jujitsu period. But then because of my not great carb tolerance, I would feel kind of lightheaded and dizzy and like it just wasn't a good fit. I would get some kind of GI upset from it. And these guys looked at what I was up to and they're like, oh, you need to take in more sodium. And doing what 99% of people do when they have a coach, I ignored wholesale what they suggested I do and just kept doing <laughs> what I had already been doing, which was failing. And did this for a good year and kept waffling and failing and waffling and failing and trying to do the same thing and, and have different outcomes. And then finally, they were like, hey, man, weigh and measure everything that you're eating, all of the, the you know, everything you're supplementing, and then let's look at where the numbers are. And it, it, as a minimum level, when we look at low-carb diets that are medically supervised, five grams a day of sodium is the bare minimum. And there's a, there's a whole variety of reasons for this. Low insulin levels, it promotes a, 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 the, what, what they call the naturesis of fasting. And if your sodium goes low, then your body starts spitting out potassium because it tries to maintain the sodium-potassium ratio. And when that happens, then really bad things happen. 
And if you address the sodium levels and your body kind of spontaneously uh, automatically addresses potassium levels and all kinds of magic kind of happens. But when we looked at that, I was like under two grams of sodium a day, which ironically in the morbidity mortality research, uh, eating lower than two grams of sodium per day is like the highest level of morbidity mortality. The, the low point is about five grams per day. And then you have to get out to nearly 10 grams a day of sodium uh, to have the morbidity and mortality as bad as, as the uh, two grams a day. So it's a U-curve, but the right-hand side is very flat and kind of slow to start ticking up. So I was like, holy smokes, I'm not even getting what it, it, I, I knew I should be getting given the fact that I was eating a low-carb diet. So I started ratcheting things up, made, you know, made absolutely certain that I was getting at least five grams of sodium a day, night and day difference. I mean, literally the, the, it, it sounds cliche, but a light switch was flipped, which shouldn't be ironic because the sodium potassium channels are the way that our nerves and muscles work in our brains. So like <laughs> having adequate levels should actually make that stuff work and having inadequate levels, you will notice that things are not really functioning properly. So yeah, I really, it was rem like remarkable in terms of just, you know, we felt better, it, we performed better. And one of the things that I think is notable here is that Juliet has, has freakishly low blood pressure I and mean, she, you know, like, you know, they, barely alive. They, they will say they're like, oh, your blood pressure is 90 over 60. And Juliet would be like, that's because I'm stressed. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and they're like, what? She's like, yeah, I'm hypertensive right now, you know. And, and um, but Juliet has always self-medicated with salt. She mm -hmm. has chased salt the way I've chased cookies my whole life. And, um, you know, it, it, this has been an easy way for her to augment that to feel better and for us you know the sort of the sweat aerobic outputs and things that we do we just realized we weren't really giving voice to the electrolyte part of the equation and it just you know it's another conversation for another time about is salt dangerous or not and clearly you're saying you know as we start to eat more responsibly and we're not you know chugging Campbell's soup you know you probably need to be thinking about your sodium but I, I just wanted to put on people's radar element, LMNT, because it really has been, you know, one of the things I think that even the driver for me is a changing behavior is I don't sometimes drink water unless it's got coffee in it or it's carbonated in the form of La Croix. <laughs> right. And, and suddenly I'm drinking a lot more water. Well, I have to interrupt you. You're just getting all like theoretical and sciencey, but really what you haven't said is it tastes goddamn good. Oh yeah. So that's the You guys are doing a terrible job marketing it because you don't want to tell someone to drink a salt pouch. No one wants to drink a salt pouch. What you want to drink is something that tastes goddamn good. It is. It is. I'm so does. entertained, and and uh, <laughs> it stretches to a whole bottle, a whole bike bottle, and um, it really so is. That's what we've been riding with, and it's been an absolute game changer for me. And I discovered it at a Spartan race. I had, I think, where we last saw you. I had a, yeah. this element pouch in my pocket, and I jumped in, and I was like, "Damn it." This is such a good idea. <laughs> well, and, and, we you will know, obviously put a link to it in our show notes. Awesome. Awesome. And thank you guys for the, the glowing reviews on that. The, in full disclosure, we had a pretty good gut sense that this thing would, would go well initially. We, for almost two years, we had a here's how to make the, the, this, a, a homebrew version on your own. And we had a shocking number of downloads of this, this PDF. And so we had a, a, a gut sense that it would be valuable. Um, the reason why we ended up going with a product is we started getting tagged on social media 
and folks are like, hey guys, love what you, you suggested here, but when I was going through TSA, the three bags of white powder kind of got on their radar, you know, and, and so <laughs> um, that's what kind of lit us a fire under us to do this thing, but in full transparency, when we formulated the first flavor, which is that citrus salt, we made it first as a margarita base, just in case this thing flopped as an electrolyte supplement, we could just like repivot and and take these, you know, vast quantities of, of flavored salt and turn it into a cocktail mix. So yeah. full disclosure, Wait. you and Nikki invented the NorCal margarita, which we was did. the first low sugar, no sugar margarita in my per and purview. And I, as soon as I had the, the lemon lime, I was like, Oh, I know what this is. This is, this Wait, is about, put, this is the NorCal margarita. Yes, yet? we have. We, we and, need to do that. And, uh, I'll also just point out that if people are starting to go lower carbohydrate or playing with keto, this has been an important tool for them. And I don't, I just want to give a, you mean it should be an important, it tool? should be an important tool because it really does help banish keto flu when people are starting. And I just want to give a full homage that we use it from performance and taste and lifestyle, but you really have created a, an excellent tool to bridge. And I just want to thank you for really solving this problem in really an elegant way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was definitely a problem hidden in plain sight. It's kind of funny. We, Sodium in our diets typically comes with refined foods, and it's crystal clear that refined foods are a problem, but this is one of those, you know, uh, correlation, not necessarily causation pieces, where as folks remove refined food from the diet, they may need to add sodium from other sources. And as, as on point as uh, Lauren Cordain was with many things, I think he really missed the... Uh, the sodium piece. And, and interestingly, this was something that just observationally, like Greg Glassman, God, I want to say it was maybe like 2005. You know, he was like, Hey, Robbie, I like this paleo thing, but I really don't like that sodium intake, you know, the low sodium intake, because I, I see people crashing, you know, they'll, they'll go from seated to standing and they'll, you know, hypovolemic kind of, kind of deal. And, and uh, so he would really recommend that folks up their sodium intake. And so that was one thing that early on, I kind of parted ways with the, the mainstream paleo crowd. And part of that was performance. And part of it was uh, uh, compliance. Like if, if I could get people more or less off of say like refined grains, that was such a win. And then in my mind, when they're making themselves a nice salad and they want to do a couple of cracks of, of sea salt on there, that, that's not the, the hill to die on, you know? So <laughs> no, it, it's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have to say personally, you know, I am not an expert in these things, but I've had a friend, a couple of friends who've discovered they were celiacs and then almost pass out and feel terrible. And I was like, Oh, you just don't get enough salt. And <laughs> yep. they've already seen their doctors. And then they turned out, they were like, Whoa, it was that simple. And I was like, yeah, welcome to the club. Yeah. The salt, the salt gang. R Rob, we, we could go on. I mean, thank you so much. You really, and personally, I just want to thank you for being the person who I think is probably most responsible for Julian and I living diabetic, obesity-free lives for you know, and and really putting on food quality. You have been, you're the first of our friends to write a book. You, I mean, you've just been breaking ground for so long. Where do we find more about you? Uh, just robwolf.com is where you know the blog, the podcast, folks can. Uh, get information about Element from there. And if folks are, are curious about the science behind all this stuff, like you, you kind of alluded to this, we have some great 
research over at drinkelement.com. Uh, and I'll just throw out really quickly, there's a fascinating position paper from the ACSM, American Council of Sports Medicine, that suggests that um, it, it this, there's a, a size dependency to this, like larger people need a little bit more, smaller people a little bit less. But they, they start the conversation for people training in hot and or humid environments at 7 to 10 grams of sodium per day. That's where they start the conversation. Hmm. So it's not insane. Uh, it, it seems insane, but um, the epidemiology really doesn't, doesn't uh, and the more specific science doesn't really support sodium as being the problematic factor. There's likely some other features there. And then particularly for folks that are high motor output, if they live in a hot, humid environment, um, your sodium needs may be shockingly higher than what you've historically been taken care of. And it, it, it's, um, it is potentially such an easy thing to address. And it, again, for, for my life, it just, and, and what's funny is in theory, I'm a quote expert on this stuff but I still manage to screw it up. And this is where, like Kelly, you've always, you've always said, everybody needs a coach. And, and as Dan John has said, uh, he who has himself as a coach has an idiot for a coach. So it's, you know, <laughs> look, look outside yourself for some guidance. And the, the cool thing about the electrolyte story is that the, the feedback loop is literally minutes. So, you know, if you take some whey protein or creatine or something, it's like, ah, I think I noticed a difference. But like, if you're feeling like dog shit and then you take adequate sodium intake, you feel better immediately. And that's part of the reason why the thing's been as successful as it, as it has been. You know, I have to just one last story. I think that you may already know that I love popcorn. Yes. Um, but it really, I believe, is has nothing to do with the actual popcorn. It's just that I get such in it because I'm so low blood pressure. I get such an immediate salt hit by eating popcorn <laughs> that I feel better immediately it after I eat sense. popcorn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, now sometimes my digestive system doesn't feel better. <laughs> Cornivore. Well, Rob, anyway, thanks, thanks again, for being Rob. It's so fun to talk to you. Last sixteen years, I met you in two thousand four, and I'm just so tickled that. Uh, all these years later, you're even better at uh, simplifying this and, and helping me not feel as crazy as I did around nutrition. Well, there's plenty of crazy to go around, so we don't really need to add to it. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. Rob Wolf. Thank, thank you, you so again, much. Rob. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it!